Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, marhaben, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories. I'm your host, Betsy Olam. Thank you for joining us and listening today. Uh, Look, I know there's been a little lag time since our last podcast, so uh, I apologize, but I'm really glad to be back, and we're glad you're here. Today, I am honored to have with us Jerry Hingle, a true expert in business and trade issues affecting the exports of forest products, produce, and grain. Jerry joins us remotely from Louisiana. Hi, Jerry. Welcome to the podcast. Hey there, how are you? Great, great. We're we're so glad you're here. And we're going to talk a lot about what you do and your organization. Uh, let's start first uh, with the fact you are president of International Trade Associates. I believe you you established that organization. Can you tell us a little bit about it and, and what sure. you all do? Sure, glad to. And thanks for including me. I'm really just, it's an honor to chat with you. Like I said, there's so many fun, neat stories out there to share. I think what you're doing is just a really neat service to the international trade community, for sure. So, again, I appreciate being included in it. So, basically, the organization I launched about six years ago, helping folks in the food and agriculture industry expand internationally. And, you know, we've seen all this, this, you know, rancor over the trade war and everything else. And I think it's important to point out how important international trade is to so many small businesses as well as large here in the United States. Definitely. And you know, one of the challenges that a lot of folks have is, is the resources and you know, but just not the financial resources, but the expertise to connect folks with buyers, right? Right. And that's kind of what we do here. This is what we do here. And you know, there's a lot of small businesses, you know, uh, that are just eager to get overseas and they, they can certainly do it. They just need some hand holding holding. And, you know, just, again, the resources to get out there and connect, and that's kind of what I do. Absolutely. I certainly relate to that. So um, we're, I'm going to, you know, go backwards just a little bit so people, uh, you know, get to know you a little bit. So your roots uh, come from Louisiana, and I believe including a degree from Loyola. I thought maybe you could tell us more about your education and about your business or career and how your Louisiana roots have intersected and, and brought you to where you are. Sure. Um, glad to. Again, undergrad at Loyola here in New Orleans and then was eager to get out of New Orleans for a little while. And actually, it turned out a little side story here. The lady I was dating at the time, who I later married, uh, is French, was going to, to school uh, in Emion, France, in the north of France. And I took upon the opportunity to uh, be nearby in Brussels, Belgium, to get my uh, grad degree MBA there. And so it was serendipity. It all worked out well. Yeah. And worked there, uh, started working there in PR, and it turned up quote-unquote PR. This is in the early 1990s. Goodness. Uh, PR could be loosely defined as policy work, 
at the early stages of the European Union's, you know, European Commission was being formed in 1992 and everything that would happen in there. So it was a really exciting time to be in Belgium. And so oh, yeah. it, was, it was total serendipity. All that was going on in Belgium at the time was really exciting. It was kind of, you know, the new Washington of Europe, right? And so yeah. there was all these folks going there, attorneys, lobbyists, you know, folks that were flocking to Brussels to make sure that they, uh, you know, their products weren't shut out of what would now be a 12-nation block of sorts, right? It was and so, so complicated. It was, the timing was perfect. Yeah, I mean, it was indeed, so complicated. I, I think I was mm -hmm. in... I think I was in Bruges and Brussels when they were voting on the Maastricht Treaty. Uh, That's right. So, yeah, isn't that something now, now that you mentioned Indeed. it? Indeed. But, uh, and, and gosh, now, I mean, so complicated what they had to do to pull together the union. And now, of course, with Brexit, it's uh, how do you unravel and or right. re-ravel so, wow, that must have been a fascinating time to be there. So Indeed, it was. It was really exciting time, and it just really kind of kind of launched me in my efforts towards, you know, what I'm doing now. And, mm -hmm. you know, after finishing grad school, I started working in a, a, a PR agency. We were representing a few agricultural groups in the United States that were uh, promoting, like, rice, for example, and, and, and meats into Europe. And so that's how I, how I kind of cut my teeth and doing what I'm doing now. Wow. Yeah. Interesting path. So now um, maybe I don't know how far in the future I'm moving forward, but then you have some experience. And if you could tell us a little bit about American Forest and Paper Association and then SUSTA, kind of explain who yep. they are. Sure. Love to. So again, the decided title is I'm going to come back to the United States and um, was eager to kind of continue working the kind of policy side of things. And Ended up moving to Washington, D.C. and worked uh, just out of just total luck. I landed a job with this American Forest and Paper Association, which also worked uh, in international trade and trying to get timber products overseas. Right. And so uh, landed that position there, loved it, and uh, just kept going from there. and really, really enjoyed it. And I got to tell you, We'll talk about this in a bit. I still have sawdust in my blood. I swear I really enjoy working in the timber industry. <laughs> well, and I, so I really, really yeah. enjoyed it. I actually worked for International Paper here in Memphis for eight years in their export okay. group. Is that the lobbying arm of the uh, of the industry? I, yes, I they, exactly. They had they had a large large staff of folks involved on the Hill and everything, and that was part of what they did. You know, they, they of course they did you know they, they interface with Congress, but also they kind of united the industry, both the paper and the timber side in trying to address common issues such as forestry practices, uh, sustainability, certification, along with the things that affected the industry as a whole, both paper and, 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 the, and the solid wood side. Sure, sure. Uh, interesting. And then, so how did you transition from there to SUSTA? And please let uh, our listeners know what SUSTA is. Sure. It, it's called Southern United States Trade Association. And they're based here in New Orleans. And again, they, they kind of ran in the same circles as what I did. I worked with federal grants, USDA, Foreign Agricultural Service, on some of this work. They provide some of the resources to help businesses expand. And so they do just that. They're here in New Orleans, and they needed a new uh, executive director. And I applied, and, and I was fortunate to have been accepted. And they have a really unique and important role. You know, I mentioned earlier small businesses. There's a lot of small businesses. Again, you know, your smaller 
geez, uh, uh, rice producers or, or halal certified poultry producers or, you know, even things such as hot sauce and, and, and condiments and, and those type of things that these small businesses, you know, uh, they're expanding regionally in the United States and this organization gives them the resources to, to connect overseas and do a really good job at it. They provide uh, trade show exhibits around the world, inbound, outbound trade missions to connect these small businesses with buyers. Uh, around the world, and it's really heartening to see these companies that otherwise would have never dreamed to be exporting to places like Japan and Vietnam and right. you know uh, Saudi Arabia and everything else. Now they're doing it because of those resources. Those are great resources. So, for example, uh, with regard to trade shows, would Susta have a booth, and then some of these smaller mm-hmm. companies can? participate in the booth uh, meeting exactly you're absolutely right that's just what they that's one of the key services they provide they'll put pavilions uh massive pavilions at these major trade shows such as seattle in paris or anuga in cologne and there's others in asia for example what they do is they'll they'll have a, a large presence at that trade show and then the small businesses all have a a, a booth of sorts within that pavilion and it's totally turnkey for the small businesses because all they have to do is show up, right? I mean, everything's yeah. done. I mean, they've got interpreters if that's needed. They've got, you know, uh, ability to serve samples and everything else of, of their, their products at the event. So it's a huge win for these guys because going to these big trade shows like CL, you've got to have a, a, a you know, deep pockets and, and, and it's a lot of work. And what Susta does is takes care of all that for you and connects you with those buyers there. That's amazing. Is it funded by the SBA or by the industries? Or uh, I wondered. I'm just it, curious. It, that's it's on a cost. You're right. It's on a cost share basis. So a, a lot of these funds do come from the Foreign Agricultural Service. Uh, they have uh, a few programs in place designed to help, again, small businesses expand internationally, and they've been hugely successful over the years. And uh, it's part of the Farm Bill. And um, you know, the goal here. You know, here in the United States, we've got a huge trade surplus in agriculture, and part of that is because, you know, we're so good at what we do, right. but also our effort to help expand internationally. And that's part of, so again, a cost-share basis whereby the companies participate, pay, you know, a fee and, and parts of the expenses to get over there. And, and SUSTA is on a cost-share basis with the USDA's Foreign Cultural Service to do that. Right, right. Well, yeah, I, I just want people to be aware of those kind of services. Uh, the Department of Commerce has some of those services as well. There, there's a fee exactly. for some of them, but they're very reasonable, and it, it just helps uh, these companies uh, uh, get introduced to markets and, and find partners and that kind of thing. So it's very helpful. But, you're absolutely right. And I would encourage anybody who's just starting to look at exports. I mean, again, you mentioned Commerce Department's a great source. If you're in the food and ag industry, USDA has tons of resources out there. Again, it's been proven over and over again that, you know, the more we export, the more jobs it creates. Exactly. And, you know, the math has worked in our favor over and over again. It's been proven that this works. And so every dollar we spend to get folks overseas, you know, there's a multiplier of sorts of job creation and wealth created here in the United States. Right. Right. Uh, exactly. It's, it's important to get that word out. So, so um, you, you work part of your, I guess, customer base would be nonprofits or associations, something like yep. that. Exactly. And, exactly. So typically the trade associations, um, geez, uh, there's the Southern Forest Products Association based here in New Orleans. There's, um, geez, the, the, 
the, the American Sweet Potato Marketing Institute. There's the California Strawberry Commission. There's a few folks that I work with. And basically what those trade associations do is unite the interests of their respective industries. And then through the nonprofit, you know, we will organize events around the world that would uh, that their members in, in turn can take part in. I see. I see. Well, yeah, no, that sounds uh, really interesting. And I imagine for you, it's interesting to learn about some of these different agricultural products. I'm sure I know, you know, most of them by now, but I'm sure there's still things you're learning about the industries and, you know, how they deal with their markets. You're right. And they, they all have unique challenges. You know, in the food and egg side, really one of the biggest challenges is um, issues, phytosanitary issues when you're trying to export yes. to, let's say, Vietnam. And, and they've got some sort of swine, there's some sort of issue that they're concerned about to make sure that, you know, it's, it's, it's in accordance with their uh, FDA of sorts. That's, that's an issue. Labeling is another thing you have to watch out for. Some countries require different types of labeling than the others. Um, well, but every, every, every market has unique well, for example, um, you know, you, you get a can of your wonderful Tennessee barbecue sauce. <laughs> you know, some countries require that you, you know, reveal the, the ingredients, you know, okay. in, uh, in, in metric terms or in, in their language. Right. Yeah. You know, there's a long list of things, you know, and some ingredients aren't allowed in that country, for example. So you got to be very cautious to get the approvals in advance. Right. Yeah, no, the labeling issue is very complex. So I understand. Um well, I think it would be nice to get into some of your stories uh, that maybe that you could share with us based on all this great experience that you've had. You told me about a, a bunch of different markets that you work in. Maybe you want to start with Southeast Asia. And yeah, I mean, it's been really, you know, it was interesting with every catastrophe, there's a there's an opportunity. And that's kind of what we're seeing right now with this whole trade war with China. You know? Yes, yes. Um, it's been really, again, I'll focus on the timber industry because that's really where I spend most of my time. Um, you know, right now we've lost significant sales to China. The industry has as a result of the rising tariffs. And so there's been a real effort over the last few years to develop alternative markets. And so we're looking towards Southeast Asia, North Africa, oh, geez, the Caribbean, Central America, pardon me, South America and, mm -hmm. and the Middle East. And so... Really, it's been a real win. The way we, we kind of we bring this as a win to folks, well, let's take Southeast Asia, for example. The furniture producers there export their furniture um, to Europe, United States, Japan. And each of these countries now, our countries here, are increasing their uh, regulations on the legality of wood used in the furniture, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And so, for example, the European, exactly. So the European Union say, well, you know, we've got to make sure the wood inputs in this chair are of legal source because sometimes in these countries the the timber concessions are dubious you know whether or not it's in fact a legal source is it sustainable and so by us being able to supply something that's guaranteed to be sustainable and legal they can check that box they have no trouble getting their product out of uh, let's say the philippines into the united states japan or, or, or europe right mm -hmm. so it's a real win for these guys at the same time they're also seeing you know declining availability and, and, and quality of the logs there we're able to come in and supply material that's competitively priced and, again, checks that box on the legality part of it, right? Right. So that's fun. I enjoy that because, again, it's a win for these guys. I think what's more heartening, too, the work we do in the Caribbean and now in South America is, you know, really, we saw the devastating hurricane that occurred just recently in the Bahamas. And right. over the past few years, we've seen, you know, a lot of bit, quite a bit of damage. 
one of the things we do is we fly engineers down to these countries and help train uh, architects and builders and, and engineers in those countries on how to properly build with wood, right, for high wind. Yeah. And, um, you know, unfortunately, you see a lot of these, you know, it's interesting if you see the, the images of, of, over the Bahamas, some of these structures are standing without a problem. Others are devastated right next to it. Right. And that's solely a function of, of construction, you know, practices. Right. And so our goal is, is to, you know, help train those folks on how to do it right to withstand high wind. And so that's been really interesting and keeping us very busy for sure. Oh, for sure. So let's uh, just for a second, let's talk about the Bahamas. Um, are you already seeing resources there or financing to be able to start rebuilding or is that going to be a really long, long process? Yeah, it's, you're right. It's going to be long. You're absolutely right. Just like we saw in Puerto Rico and elsewhere in the region, it's going to be a while. We're seeing, you know, FEMA actually is quite active there. And uh, so we're seeing actually wood going to the market. And that's being used for temporary, you know, boarding and whatnot. Um, yeah. But it's going to be a long, drawn-out process. And you read the press as much as your readers do. You know, there's a question whether or not they'll even rehabitate some of those islands. Yeah, you know, yeah. The same, or they'll just stay in Nassau, right? Yeah, so. I understand Nassau was really not uh, as devastated as some of those other islands. Yeah. yeah. So That's and right. and That's any right. of the materials that that some of those homes that were destroyed is any of that material reusable? That's no, it's gone. It's rubble. Yeah, rubble. You know, yeah. having lived through Katrina here in New Orleans, I can tell you they just bulldoze it. It gets gone. Oh, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, you know? yeah. So you just you just start over. Yeah, you, know, you start over. And you and you build right this time. You know, right. I mean, and that's kind of we're going to be real busy doing just that, getting engineers down there, find out why the failures occurred. You know, it was a poorly connected, you know, poor use of, of nails. Was it the wood not pressure treated? You know, what happened? Why did it fail? And why did this house next to it do just fine? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, again, the goal is to help them build better as they rebuild. Exactly. So uh, when was the last time, let's say, you were in Southeast Asia? And, and mm. was that recently? Let's see. Uh, Vietnam, I said Vietnam about three weeks ago. And then the Philippines about three weeks, maybe a month prior to that. So we're doing a lot of work in that area. And I really enjoy it. You know, and what's neat about Southeast Asia is that they, they like us. <laughs> they yeah. like us Americans. You know, they really, it's easy to do work there. The English skills are absolutely superb. I mean, just better than folks I see here <laughs> in my hometown sometimes. Yeah. The English skills are superb. Uh, you know, oh, oftentimes, wow. of course, they trade in U.S. dollars. Um, oftentimes they even use imperial, uh, like in the Philippines, they'll use imperial uh, dimensions, for example. Right? Sure. And so it's real easy to do business in a lot of these countries. It really is. That's great. That's great. Um, so, uh, well, how about um, some stories or experiences from some other areas, North Africa, for example, South America? That's an interesting market. Indeed, yeah. South is you know, South, uh, North Africa is the same kind of approach with the furniture industry. Again, they, what they're trying to do there is, um, you know, they're trying to ex they do export into uh, mostly Europe, and so we're trying to supply. Obviously, there's no tree, no resources there. Right. It's funny. Uh, we met with uh, the uh, Egyptian Furniture Manufacturers Association about a year and a half ago, and I've met with a lot of these types of groups. And you know, we sat down and they introduced themselves, and they gave us a, a PowerPoint presentation. And they started with the year 3000 BC. <laughs> 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 Makes you feel small. The history, 
exactly. Well, but not the history, but the history of furniture production, right? Really? And they say, well, in 3000 BC, yeah, we we, we invented the chair. You know, <laughs> the first known chair was made here in near Cairo. You know. Oh. And wow. so that just kind of underscores the you know how long these folks have been at that. You know, and one little trick was interesting too. We um, you know you'll see this pretty often. They'll they'll produce like again. Let's use a chair as an example. Nine tenths of it will be made, you know, you know, in, in Egypt, and then they'll ship it to Italy, and the Italians will put uh, a leather strap on the back of it. Now it's made in Italy, right? Yeah. And so they can sell it for three times what they normally would have. Exactly. Right? Exactly. That's so, uh, yeah. so interesting. I'm still, I'm still thinking about how old that industry is because when you first mentioned Egypt, their the furniture association, I was thinking, really? They, I guess they would have a furniture. Yeah. So, yeah, it goes way, way back. All right. So we've had the situation with the tariffs with China. Was there a time, or is it still happening, where there's a glut? in the the u.s market of material that was supposed to go to china and still looking for a home or or, or things moving yeah yeah that's 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 a really good point i mean that and somebody particularly the, the timber guys that the hardwood industry is hurt real badly i yeah. mean they haven't they lost about 50 percent of their exports and you know they're trying desperately to find alternative markets um so there, there is a glut of sorts happening that's driving down prices here in the u.s um, but everybody's working real hard. We're rowing hard to get in those new markets. And we're all looking again at Southeast Asia's, but you know, even Vietnam can't take the, the, the capacity of furniture production, for example, that was being produced in China. I mean, all these countries collectively in a few years, maybe, yeah. but right now the industry took a, a big, big hit, big wow. hit as wow. we try to develop elsewhere. And having just got back from Vietnam a few weeks ago, they, you know, we're starting to see a lot of production ship out of China, uh, shift out of China into Vietnam and elsewhere. Sure, sure. And so, uh, so there was some transshipment that's kind of suspect, you know. Um, yeah. But you know, right? I mean, you hear those rumors. I can't. I can only, you know, <laughs> uh, can only conjecture on that. But you know, there there is increasing production activity in those countries because they're trying to get away from the tariffs. Are any of these Chinese companies that have actually just moved to, or are these yep. all Vietnamese companies? No, that, 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 that's, that's, a, that's a great question because that's a little bit of both to the ire of the Vietnamese producers because they're seeing the Chinese companies come in with their own, own supply chains and they're in turn, you know, exporting and taking market share from the Vietnamese producers oh. in some cases. Well, so it's really had a ripple effect across the whole region. You know, it really has. Yeah, no, I, I, I'd be, I, I bet there's some interesting uh, scenarios with between these Vietnamese, you know, domestic companies and the Chinese coming in. Um, mm -hmm. uh, what is, you know, we're no, right now we're not part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but is that still moving forward with other, countries and and um... yeah you know and it, it, to be honest i'll try to keep my opinion out of this but i mean it's really a disappointment for folks like us that were that were exporting to these regions because now we're at a disadvantage with the other countries in ttp so for example australia can ship lumber uh, into the region right. uh, at no tariff whereby we're spending we're getting I think it's 4.8% tariff into Japan, right? Right. And so it has affected us. You know, it's unfortunate that now, you know, these folks have a leg up on us. 
part of the, the, the strategy with our free trade agreement with, with Japan is to try to reach parity with that country, um, you know, outside the context of TTP, right? So, yeah. as you know, just recently they announced uh, this free trade agreement of sorts, a mini agreement of sorts with Japan. And the goal here is to try to, again, reach parity with what would have occurred on the TTP. Right. It, it, it's not the same so, having these bilaterals, no, and I don't mind saying I personally think it was a mistake. I, I, I'm sure that we could have made it better uh, for our part, but uh, I think it was a mistake to pull out. I was really disappointed, and yeah, uh, I was too. I hope that maybe someday we'll get back to the table on that. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and you're absolutely right. I got to commend, you know, the, 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 the diplomats and the trade negotiators that worked for years on this thing here I in the know. United States, their career, they're talented, they're smart, they're driven, they're career diplomats. You know, they've really worked hard on this thing and we were so close and all of a sudden it went away. It's really, it's, it's really devastating for a lot of these folks. I know, I know. Uh, so people like us need to voice our opinion, which we're doing right here, that uh, it, we need to take another look at it. Uh, there's, it, you can always make it a better deal, but it, 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 it was more, you know, and I look at it as a national security issue too. Uh, mm -hmm. so yep. anyway, we, we could have another podcast about that someday. So indeed, so, right. All right. So let's talk about, um, South America. And, uh, I mean, of course they're major producers of wood and other agricultural products. What is the buying relationship with say Mercosur and your customers? Well, I mean, you know, we have a free trade agreement with Peru and with Colombia and Chile. And right. so we're trying to leverage that right now. And we're working actually in Peru. We're working with uh, actually with um, uh, USAID and our, our embassy there and others that are interested in preserving the, 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 for, the forest there that are being, uh, being clear cut for cocoa production. And so the yeah. goal here, and I'm, I'm, I'm digressing here, but the point is that the win here is to try to create value out of the timber in Peru and in doing so, we are going down there and helping shape their building codes to allow wood in construction and thereby create value of the timber rather than just clear continent for, uh, for cocoa production. And it's sort of like the same in Afghanistan, poppies to pistachios, right? right. You want to give the farmers an alternative, an alternative value out of their, their, their land. And that's kind of what the approach is in Peru. Colombia is the same. You know, we're doing quite a bit of work down there. They are amenable to our wood. Uh, we're just starting to work in Chile. Uh, as you know, they're a major wood producer, but right. there's quite a few niche opportunities that we have in that market um, where we can supply large dimension timber, which they, they can't, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, and another thing too, technology transfer. I mean, Chile is one of the highest seismic zone countries in the world. They face right. more uh, earthquakes than many of the countries around the world. Right. And so wood frame construction is, is a, it's a safer alternative. It's been proven to perform well. In, in earthquakes, and so we're working with them on that too. Sure, sure. So, are they um, in some of those countries? Even though we know what's happening with the in Brazil with the rainforest, are they trying to um, embrace some sustainable practices? And you know, are they making progress in that regard? They are. They absolutely are. And they, they, you know, they recognize the severity of the issue and how it needs to be addressed. You know, at the end of the day, and you see this thing all over the world, at the end of the day, it's all about the rule of law, right? 
Right. You know, you can have all these 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 rules in the books, and you can have all of these certification schemes, and you can have, you know, but if you can't enforce it, you, you got nothing. And so what you see in a lot of these places, again, you know, Vietnam, Thailand, Philippines is another example. You know, if you create the timber concession or the logs are stolen in some manner from public lands, you know, that's where the problem lies, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a question of rule of law. Right, you know? right. So, well, I imagine you've witnessed some interesting situations like that. Have you been close to a situation where there was uh, maybe some scoundrels, you know, tearing down forests or doing things, you know? I, should... I stay away from all that. I stay as far away from that part of it as I can. <laughs> I'm, talking, I'm talking to the importers. That's it. The furniture producers, the builders. I stay away from it. I don't want any part of it. Oh I man, mean, I was I was yeah. hoping for a little gossip or something here. <laughs> but okay. Well, even it's if there were, right. I, I would, I'm not sure if I'd share something like that in a forum like this. But I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, I mean, again, this stuff is it happens way out in, in Colombia. I mean, you know, you still got you know gangs and you know and, and yes. the FARC, you know, presence there that controls a lot of this stuff. You know, and right. It's just yeah, you, you want to stay away from it. You know. But Colombia is, so. is a lot more, uh, what's the word? It's a lot more stable politically now, isn't it? Than Absolutely. As far as. Yeah, have you been? Have you been to Colombia? I have not been to Colombia. I saw, I'm a, I'm a film person and I was at Sundance Film Festival this past year and there was a film called Manos, which I really enjoyed. And it was a story of child uh armies and it was it was really fascinating i mean one mm. particular child army but it, it represented you know some of the things that had happened there and uh so in that way i was i was thinking about the politics and and what's i know that it's it's a better situation now and it's it's good to know that Absolutely. You know, the United States has worked very, very hard in helping prop up their police force and, and everything else. And, you know, to be, it's probably the most heaviest, heavily policed place I've ever been. I mean, it's just amazing. Every hundred yards, there's somebody carrying a rifle and he's not a criminal. He's yeah. Police. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, it's, they're everywhere. You can, they're inescapable where you look. And just anecdotal story here. I was at a shopping mall and this is Columbia. So I said, oh, man, right. I'm going to try a cigar. Well, why not? I'm try step outside and have a cigar. Why not? <laughs> Man, I tell you, in a space of minutes, I had three police on me with really? guns not drawn, but making it clear that, okay, we're armed here. You can't smoke here. Wow. <laughs> no cigar smoking. Right. Okay. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Can I drop that? I'll go away. Real fast. Oh, wow. That's, that's amazing. Uh, you, yeah. know, you know, you actually feel pretty safe in those situations. I remember I went to China just not long after 9-11. I felt very safe at that time mm -hmm. in China. I mean, there was army and police, and boy, I, I felt safe to travel. <laughs> so. Yeah, you know, I do too. I mean, I really, you know, this notion that, you know, see some of these places, sure, there's some crime that occurs, but I mean, if you look at some of our own cities, I mean, I, I honestly feel a lot more safer walking around in Hanoi than I do in some towns here in, in the U.S. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's very safe. I've never had problems. Never. Exactly. No. It's good for people to, to realize that, too. So, All right. So I noticed through your website that you're often a resource for, you know, media and publications such as 
CNN Money and BBC World. I guess it seems that you're, you know, on the front line of various trade issues. I just wondered if there's some other relevant trade issues that you're working on right now. I mean, we've talked about quite a bit, but are there any other issues that you're working on and find some resolution to some of these bigger issues? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, there's so many balls in the air right now, and I'm really fortunate. I've, I'm on a, a, a committee under the Commerce Department called ITAC, mm-hmm. and it's a very unique um, forum where industry is able to uh, advise our negotiators, uh, USTR and Commerce, as they go into negotiations or dispute settlement negotiations with another country. So, you know, it's, it's a security cleared thing, a closed door discussion you have with these folks and say, look, this is what's important to our industry and this is what's not. Don't waste your time with this. We want this, this is important. Or this is where a problem's occurring in say the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And so our negotiators are now armed with uh, clearer direction on what uh, to gun for as they sit down with say the Japanese. And yeah. um, it's a really unique thing to do because most countries around the world don't have this, this, this mechanism to connect industry with the government negotiators. And this is, this is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. And I, I enjoy it tremendously. And, you know, right now we've got, we talked about Japan, well, China, we did Japan and the FTAs, various FTAs we have right now. NAFTA, the NAFTA rewrites kept everybody real busy, USMCA yeah. for sure. Um, you know, which is needed. It's been needed for some time. Right now, we've got the Boeing Airbus dispute. Um, you've been following, following oh, that, yeah. whereby, right, you know, and that's been going on for 15 years. And so what I'm trying to do is, is make sure our guys shipping to Europe don't get caught in the crosshairs of that because uh, the Europeans are rattling their swords as to what they want to hit, you know, what products they want to hit in the United States if we were to uh, raise tariffs on European products, right? So yeah. that's coming down the pike. Um, you know, of course, the 232 action on aluminum steel, that hasn't really caused our industry much of a headache. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, what else is out there? Along, we're, looking at, we're looking at, you know, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, free trade agreements there, Kenya, I believe, a couple others that we're starting to look at in that region that might prove some opportunities for us as well. So, and do you think any of those will come to fruition in like the next year? or so? Well, I mean, as you, as you know, well, I mean, we're very gridlock in, in, in Washington right now. And I just yeah. don't think nobody wants to give uh, the, the administration a win. And so I just, I think, you know, we have to wait until 2020 before we start seeing any movement, you know, right. uh, I, I don't think that the, 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 the stance with China is not going to change much. Uh, I think that was, in, it was really encouraging to see or interesting to see during the democratic debates that the the opinions towards China are more hawkish among some of the Democrat uh, uh, contenders than, than the Trump administration. So I don't, I don't see, you know, this contentious uh, relationship with China ending anytime soon, irrespective of who wins in 2020, right? Yeah, yeah, it's very complicated, very complicated. And it's, and it's, um, these are issues that make, uh, you know, are, are burdensome for exporters, but fortunately we also have resources and people like you and the uh, district export councils that are, that can help some of these com- companies, you know, work around some of these issues. So, right. So right. At least for you know, and a lot of, and that's a good point. The district, district export councils, of which I'm a part of the one here in New Orleans, yeah. um, you know, a lot of the work we've been doing is really outreach and trying to explain 
to ex folks that are engaged internationally what's going on out there because you know every time you open the newspaper or you put on NPR the story changes and so the goal here is to try to make sense of it all and what it really means to you in the maritime construction industry or the LNG gas exporter or the freight forwarders you know what does this mean to you and what's going to happen next week because the biggest enemy of this whole thing hasn't really been the tariffs as much as the uncertainty Right. Uncertainty really is, is what what <clears throat> what uh, makes markets go crazy. <laughs> so yep, exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, gosh, this has been such a great discussion, Jerry. I've enjoyed it so much. I want to say to our listeners that we'd love to get a conversation going about this episode, and you know, or even more general discussions about exporting. So um, I want my listeners to reach out to me on our website, exportstoriespodcast.com. You can go to the contact page or ask questions when uh, we're in post comments on the page for this episode. I'm happy to post your comments or questions. We're also on Twitter. So, so you know, we're really trying to create a community of exporters here. So please reach out and chat with us. And Jerry, thank you so much for being a great guest today. It was it was really enjoyable. Uh, it was truly my pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 